what is the real reason why there is deception in the church? Yes. Why is there, what's the real reason for deception in a church? To lead the church astray, that is one, but it's, is, it, is it the real reason? That's right. Yeah, I heard it back there. God will send a mighty delusion. Why? Because they didn't love the truth. So the initiator of delusion or deception is really God. Even in that aspect, God is in control. Right? It's a form of divine judgment on churches which have veered far off the beaten path, the, the true path which Christ has already shown. And what is the true path? I am the way, truth, and the life. No one comes to do the Father but through me. John 14, verse 6. So it's really Christ, right? Those churches who do not preach Christ, do not preach for God's do not preach salvation by grace alone through faith will be judged by God. And the judgment starts by, okay, house of God, right? Hebrews. And it's, it's, it's terrible to fall into the hands of a living God. There is divine judgment and it's also real. And those attending these churches may be excited about the things happening, may like the music, may like the, ch the preaching, may like the fellowship, may like the food, may like a lot of other things. We're sailing together. <laughs> but the reality is that particular place is under God's judgment. The more they do these things which lead away from the true gospel presentation or gospel preaching, the more they do all these other things, the more they are under God's judgment. And it's serious. So, we have to watch out not to attend these churches. We have to warn those who are in attendance. And it's difficult, I know. It's not easy. And there are family members involved in some of these churches, I know. And yet they need our prayers more than ever before. Ultimately, it's not what I say or do, it's really what I pray, what I ask the Lord to do. The Lord has to speak to their hearts. The Lord has to open their eyes. The Lord has to draw them out. Right? My, my power is not enough. My power is not sufficient enough. In most cases. Now I can manage, I can uh, utter a word of warning, but that's usually the extent of what I can do. Apart from prayer. And we do have to contend earnestly for the faith, and that is usually done on your knees. On your knees. And this is why I emphasize prayer more than anything else in recent weeks, whenever I have a teaching, position, a teaching opportunity. I was invited to teach a Sunday school, adult Sunday school in the church where I attend, 
And it's a church fairly of a fairly large size, 1,200 people in attendance. And I was asked to teach a Sunday school for adults. And it was no problem for me to come up with a topic. Prayer. Because this is what we need to do more than ever before. Because we have to realize we are not strong enough. We are a very small group. Totally insignificant in the big scheme of things. And yet we can bend our knees. And yet we can call upon the Lord Almighty to help us and to lead other Christians out of these churches and to help us to be more faithful to Him and do what we actually need to do, preaching the gospel and worshipping Him in truth, in spirit and truth. And that really happens when we bend our knees, corporately as well as individually. And we have to do this more and more and more. Pressures will, will mount. I can guarantee it to you. But I fight in, in, the, in the, what do you say, in the trenches. I do. Not necessarily by my own choosing, but that is just how God led me. And I, I will tell you another story in regards to it, which will, will help you to understand that one particular word I will mention to you later on. <laughs> and I'm, actually, I'm easy to bribe. <laughs> A good cookie will be sufficient. <laughs> and I got it already. <laughs> so... We need to bend our knees. God is sufficient. The cross is sufficient. It's fi it is finished. Right? Jesus can help. Jesus is the Savior. And He's a great Savior. Now, I, once again, I was just riding in a car a few days ago with someone at the church in Brisbane, and he said, Oh, there are so many problems, and problems seem to get bigger and bigger and bigger, and well, what's the solution? I said, we have a big Savior. We have a, we have a, a Savior who can handle it. <laughs> right? So we need to focus on, on the Savior. And we need to rely upon His promises. Believe that it will happen, that it, will, that it has happened and it will happen. I believe it's in Mark 11, 25 or 24, something like that. Let's just turn to it. Why not quote it verbatim? It's such a wonderful verse. I think it's in Mark 11, if I recall correctly. I hope I am correct. Yes, 24. Mark 11, 24. Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them and they shall be granted to you. Believe that you have received them. We stand on the foundation of that promise. There's no better place to stand on, right? Because it takes the pressure off me. I don't have to solve all these problems. I don't have to straighten out all these passes and all these churches. And I couldn't, even if I would like to. But here's a verse, and we can rely on the truthfulness of that verse. 
because God cannot lie. If God said it, it is true. He will stand uh, and fulfill his, his promises. And I can tell you of many prayer answers to his glory. I won't go into it now, but let me just mention one. Just as an encouragement. It's, it's not necessarily connected to my message, but just to encourage you in regards to your prayer life. I told you that we didn't get any, we were, permitted, uh, we were uh, pro- prohibited, not permitted to get any health insurance, right? At the beginning of this year, my wife had, was diagnosed with cancer. And what do you do? Well, you trust the Lord to help you in a, in a problem which is so far beyond for me to solve. And yes, I said, okay, Joy, you need surgery. And she did. And some of the pain she was feeling every day permanently uh, re- resided and, and disappeared. She still has some pain, but, but not what it used to be. And, and hopefully all the cancer was taken care of in regards to the surgery. But I didn't want to know how much I needed to pay that surgery and all the other treatments she, or diagnosis uh, she, she needed to have uh, prior to the surgery. I didn't want to know. Well, ultimately, I, I got the bills. <laughs> and I did. So I was avoiding reality a little bit, but it caught up with me. And when I realized by counting, calculating all the bills together, it amounted to a yearly income of me. A yearly income, right? And I'm living just, I, all I have are donations. That's all I have. I don't get a paycheck at the end of the month. It's way beyond what I can pay. I don't know how long it would take up till the end of my life, perhaps. Well, I was preparing for another preaching missions, um, uh, missions trip, uh, speaking tour in England, Germany, Switzerland, and Austria. And I did fly to London, and I did take part in a Bible, a Bible conference. And in the uh, lunch break, I was just sitting across another Englishman, and we were just talking, and it was very noisy, because it was a big room, and people were just talking with each other. It was really noisy, and if you are not a native English speaker, it's very difficult to pick up English words if this is not your native uh, language. So it was very difficult for me to concentrate and, and pick up what that other man whom I met for the first time was, a, was, tell, or was asking me. And he just asked, how is your family, how is your wife, how are your children? And he, as I said, I met him for the first time. He didn't know anything about us. And I didn't want to tell him about my wife's situation. So, I, yes, I talk, told, told him about my children and so on and so forth. I didn't want to tell him about joy. And he just kept pressing me, asking me, How's your wife? How's your wife? Oops. I'm getting caught here. <laughs> How's your wife? And finally, I got so tired of his question. I said, I said to him, I said, Okay, I'll tell you. <laughs> well, we, she just said, uh, she was diagnosed with cancer and she had surgery and have no no way of paying for it. 
said, okay, let's, let's do that. You, will, you ask your wife to make a few pictures of some of the hospital bills. And you send these, hospital, these pictures to me. Just to make sure I'm not lying, right? I said, okay, I'll, I can do it. So I did. I asked Joy via email to make these pictures and, and send them to me. And I forwarded them to that man. A message came back, and he said, I will take care of all your bills. All of them. All of them. It just tell me how, how much, and I will take care of it. And he did. And when he sent me a message, he said, on that very day, the Lord has given him a substantial amount of money. And once he had heard my story in regards to choice, uh, needs, and, and our medical expenses, my, our debt, he said, that's just from the Lord. He gave me that money, and I'll just... He wants me to keep it on. <laughs> Isn't God great? <laughs> Does God answer prayers? Does He solve our problems which we can't solve ourselves for His own glory? Right? It was not that man. That man was just God's messenger to help us, for us to understand that we believe in the Heavenly Father Amen, yes. who knows our needs before we ask Him and can well handle all our problems no matter how big they are for His glory and honor. So that's just one and we, I could go on. We believe in a wonderful Heavenly Father. Amen. Taste and I, I don't know. Schmecken said we pointed to Harris well, I'll den die ihm vertrauen willst du. And Werner can, uh, can translate it for you. <laughs> Taste and see how, how good the Lord is, something like that. Right? Anyway, it is true. It is true. So, I wanted to do my PhD studies at the University of Aberdeen, which in Scotland. At the University of Aberdeen. I had already done my Master Divinity degree, my Master degree in Theology. Now I wanted to get my PhD in New Testament Studies. And I ended up at the University of, of Aberdeen in Scotland. And my future supervisor by the name of Dr. Ruth Edwards asked me to come to her office to have our first meeting to discuss what kind of topic I would like to research and write, a, write about in regards to my PhD studies, which is a three-year full-time course of study, it's a, a research degree. So I did, I went to her office and we sat down and almost the very first question she asked me was, what do you think of the Bible? What's your understanding in regards to the Bible? I wanted to write about a passage in Revelation chapter 5. And you will hear a, a, a sermon tomorrow on chapter 5 in Revelation. So this is a very special passage to me. I wanted to spend three years <laughs> from morning to evening to think about Revelation 5 and on what a wonderful Savior we have in Jesus Christ. 
What do you think of the Bible? Well, I do believe, I, in so many words, that's what I said, I do believe it's God's word. It's inerrant. I do believe in true prophecy. Certain passages in the book of Revelation are true prophecy, speaking about events still in the future, which have not yet been fulfilled, but will be fulfilled, and fulfilled literally, and things like that. She was listening, and once I was finished, she looked at me and she said, <laughs> I'm caught again. <laughs> she said, this is the few she hates the most. And she will do whatever is in her power to prevent me from getting my PhD degree. First meeting, almost the very first question and first answer she, a reply she gave me. Whatever is in her power, she will keep me from getting my degree. Lovely lady, right? <laughs> and then she said, okay, here's my view. I believe that the book of Revelation is just uh, a picture of a heavenly uh, conflict. A spiritual conflict, not heavenly, spiritual conflict between the principle of evil and the principle of good. Okay, there's no God, of course. Just a picture for us to visualize how good and evil fight with each other. And then, obviously, we have to wait what will come of that. <laughs> this is the so-called idealistic view of Revelation. There are different, different interpretational models of how to interpret Revelation. I didn't say it. <laughs> but it surely, that, that thought surely crossed my mind once she was finished. I didn't say it, but the thought which crossed my mind was, this is the few I hate the most. <laughs> but, oh. Caught again. I, I think I'll stay away from it. Whatever it is, that hook. So, we didn't get on very well, right? <laughs> So she said, well, if you don't follow or fall in with my view, too bad for you. You're not, get, you're not getting your degree. So after a while, after a few more meetings, she said, okay, she will, she will come up with a compromise solution. She will still prevent me from getting my PhD degree, but I can write my Master of Theology degree uh, thesis in order to ob uh, obtain that Master of Theology degree. It's a one-year course of study, full-time study. And since I want to write my thesis on the book of Revelation, she will suggest to me Revelation 20, verses 1 to 10, which is the passage on the millennium. And then she said she's also the expert on classical studies, meaning Greek mythology and all of that. And she would want me to do the following. And she, said, she prefaced that with the comment that if I agreed to that compromise uh, solution, she would allow me to write my thesis based on the presupposition that the Bible is God's word. She would allow me to do that. <laughs> but 
obviously I would need to fulfill the second part of that compromise solution. And she said she will make my life as, as difficult as she possibly can. This means, quite practically speaking, I will have to read the major Greek church fathers in regards to their particular interpretation of the millennium in Greek. <laughs> Once I'm done with reading those Greek church fathers, I have to progress, go on to read the major Latin church fathers, read all of them in Latin, and once I'm done with that, I'm allowed to, to write my, my thesis. <laughs> so you work around the clock to get it done, basically. Do you agree? You are allowed to write your thesis based on the proposition that the Bible is going to Do you agree? Do you want to do that? Well, yes, I do. <laughs> There's no other answer you can give, right? Can I deny the word? Because if you deny the word, you deny Christ. If you deny Christ, you deny your salvation. You deny your eternal home with him eventually in heaven. There's no other answer to give. So, so she made me work like a dog. <laughs> Was it good or bad? Praise the Lord. It was very good for me. <laughs> I learned Greek like I had never studied it before. <laughs> I learned Latin <laughs> very well, so I can, no problem. Mostly, most of the time I read my Greek Bible, I read, and I have a Greek Bible, New Testament with both the Greek text and the Latin text, and I like to read both. I can just open it and just start reading and that uh, professor did, very, uh, did me very well. Is this good? Good expression. He did, he did very good. <laughs> she helped me, right? I, I'm a little lazy sometimes. <laughs> and she put a little fire under my behind, right? <laughs> I don't know if this is a good expression. <laughs> Perhaps a German idiom. <laughs> but it was still amazing that God led me to that university because I'm also very interested in history and I went to the university library and it, is, it was a huge building had about six different floors and some uh, and a basement and I believe on the sixth floor the entire floor was full of history books any kind of history books not just church history including church history but any kind of history books so I was just looking through and all of a sudden I saw one shelf. And there was just one book on that shelf in multiple copies. So the whole sh length of the shelf was filled with multiple copies of just one book. And I looked at the title and I immediately recognized the title. It was a, it was a very famous book. And I won't explain all the details, but I immediately recognized the title and also was totally surprised by the fact that multiple copies of that controversial book was standing on that particular shelf. And due to previous studies, I knew that there are two different schools in historical study. I'm not talking about theology, I'm talking about history. There are two different schools, conservative, liberal. 
The same phenomenon which we find in theology, meaning there is conservative theology and there is liberal theology, we ought to find in history. There are always two different views of just about every major event of modern history. They usually concern themselves only about modern history. And most people don't even know about that. It's like you are taught liberal theology from morning till evening, and you never hear anything about conservative theology. What do you think? That's, that's all correct and true and, and right, right? If you never hear anything which counters that particular view, like you go into a liberal church and you hear about Jesus resurrected in our thoughts, in our heart. Right? He wants, to, he wants us to live a moral life. But he surely never resurrected bodily. If this is all you hear, you think, well, that, that must be true, right? And all of a sudden you go into a, a conservative church and you hear about Jesus or you read the Bible and you find out Jesus rose from a dead death or from a grave literally, bodily. You're utterly surprised, right? Because you have never heard that before. Same thing really is true in regards to the study of history. All you hear is the liberal view. That's all you hear. And thus you don't even know that there is a whole different other side a conservative view. You just take it in as if it would be true. And all of a sudden I discovered that one book which presents the conservative view of one particular event in the 20th century. And then, well, I jumped to the conclusion that if there is a professor who made sure that more than copies of that particular book was bought by the library, he probably assigned that particular book to his students and he did assign it because he's on the conservative side. That was my conclusion. Well, I, I tried to prove that by looking through the shelves, and if I could find other history books which presented the conservative view, that uh, hypothesis of mine would be proven true, right? But there is at least one professor of history who is favoring the conservative view. Are you following me up to that point? So I looked, through, I looked around and sure enough, that was proven tr correct. I saw other books, quite a number of books, favoring the, the conservative point of view. So I jumped to another conclusion. I thought, well, if this is true, most likely I find primary resource material, primary documents, down in the archives, down in the basement. Right? So let's prove, let's, let's see if this is true. So I went down to the archives and looked through the resources. And I was just utterly amazed. Because I found so many good resources uh, favoring the conservative viewpoint that I split my time 50% of my time, I was reading the Greek and Latin church fathers. <laughs> and 50% of my time I spent down in the archives just to read one history book and, and original uh, document after another. 
at the end of one year, I ended up having made photocopies of all these original resources, which filled 40 different folders this size. 40 different folders full of photocopied resources. Because it was just, I just found one after another. It was amazing. It was a treasure trove. And who in the world would have guessed that, right? God led me to that university and didn't, prevent, didn't allow me to write my PhD thesis in New Testament studies. Helped me to get a better working knowledge in regards to Greek and Hebrew, uh, Greek and Latin, excuse me. But then also helped me to discover all these wonderful history resources, which were the basis, the foundation of my future PhD studies. So once I was done and I passed, once I was done, I went down to London to study for my PhD degree in history. Or church, uh, it was called church history, but yes, it was church history, but it was also history. And, and what I wanted to do, I wanted to use that thesis as a apologetic project. By that I mean, I want to use this thesis to fight against views which are not Christian and obviously argue for Christian views right, a conservative view I could, cho- could have cho- chosen many different topics to fulfill the same purpose but I settled on one particular topic because I thought this would be most continual to, to fulfilling that particular purpose, that apologetic purpose. Now the liberals school of historical studies or historiography is called new history new history it was set in place or it was uh, conceived by a history professor at at Columbia University in New York City it is the Ivy League university it's a very prestigious university at the beginning of the 20th century his name is James Harvey Robinson and James Harvey Robinson was a dedicated Marxist, a dedicated Darwinian, and also a dedicated Freudian. Meaning he was a dedicated anti-Christian. Yeah. Someone who was totally opposed to the Christian faith. And he said, and I read it in one of his books, he said that he got together with some of his colleagues and they, they were discussing how they could attack the Christian faith most effectively by using the study of history as, as a means to do so. And the conclusion they came up with was we come up with a whole new school of historical study which we also will call new history. In order to eliminate or do our best to eliminate every Christian influence in American culture. And then they said, well, what is, what is most important, or what is very important in regards to the Christian faith? What is one aspect we need to oppose most, uh, uh, most clearly? Well, Christians regard truth very highly. So, in order to attack that understanding, that there is some absolute truth, we will use history as propaganda. We will falsify historical facts. We will change history according to our own liking. 
using it as an ideology to fight against the Christian faith. So we will falsify deliberately historical facts in order to fight against the concept of truth. So the conservative view is obviously we do uphold truth. We truly want to know what's happening in the future. Right? And the, the liberal new history view is we can change history around according to what we think is important. And the highest goal is to set up a, or to help, to do their part, to contribute uh, whatever they can to the setting up of a world government. So we use the study of history to change the thinking of whoever reads our books in favor of world government. Right? In order to do that, we have to falsify historical facts. And they did. Deliberately. So if you hear only the liberal view, which this is the view you always hear, don't take it in as gospel truth. The likelihood is very high that you are being lied to. You have to know a little bit about the other side. And usually it's like black and white again. If new history says yes, the conservative scholars say no, and vice versa. So this was the project I devoted myself in, uh, devoted myself to. And there was one individual by the name of John Foster Dulles, who was one of the most outspoken proponents of world government in the early part of the 20th century. Later on, 1953, he became Secretary of State of America under President Eisenhower, John Foster Dulles, D-U-L-L-E-S. If you fly into Washington, D.C., you fly into Dulles International Airport. And that airport was named in honor of John Foster Dulles. And he was a Presbyterian layman. And then he was part of a group of delegates, American delegates to the Versailles Peace Conference after the conclusion of the First World War. That group was called The Inquiry. And they came up with the Versailles Peace Treaty. And as you know, they want to set up the League of Nations at the end of the Second, uh, First World War, right? And they want to use the League of Nations as the incipient world government. Prior to that, and I need to add that too in order for you to understand what happened next, there was a group of, a very small group of Englishmen led by Cecil Rhodes and Lord Alfred Milner who set up a group called the Round Table Group and they came to the conclusion that they can use the British Empire as the nuclear, nucleus, as the foundation of a future world government, and unite all the nations with the British Empire, and then change the British Empire to, to a different form of government. They wanted to set up a, the empire, or change the empire to an imperial federation. And England would be just one of the nations being part of that federation. Australia would be part of that federation. And Australia would be on, on the same level 
as England, as well as all the other dominions. And men may say, well, in order to have a world government, we also need to persuade the United States of America to join up with that imperial federation. Right? We can't have a world government without America staying outside of it. So they went to, um, to America and said, well, we want you to come back to the empire. What would, you, what would you imagine or expect to be the reply of the Americans? <laughs> no thank you, right? No thank you. We fought a, re- a revolutionary war to get rid of the Englishmen right in our country, so no thank you. So once America said no to that proposition to come back to the motherland, these Englishmen who thought it such a great idea to use the English empire for that purpose, realized the empire was the greatest impediment to reaching a world government. Because America was not willing to come in. So they turned around and destroyed it. Literally destroyed it. This is why you don't have a British empire anymore. They even came up with the idea of having a commonwealth. I can point you to the very book where they suggested to set up a commonwealth in place of uh, the empire. I can even tell you about your author, Lionel Curtis, who suggested, suggested it, and this is exactly how it happened, right? They destroyed the empire because it was their main impediment to reach their ultimate goal of world government. So these individuals, the Round Table Group, also met at the Versailles Peace Conference, along with the Americans were part of the inquiry. And then I realized that America was unwilling to join the League of Nations. And I won't go into all the historical details, but that is a fact. America never signed the Versailles Peace Treaty, never became a member of the League of Nations, stayed out of it. Even though President Wilson, Woodrow Wilson, was campaigning for America's entrance into the League of Nations. He didn't succeed. So America stayed out of it. What would, you, what would you say, what is your guess what happened next? The people in the inquiry, including John Foster Dollars and the Roundtable Group, who met at one hotel, Hotel Majestic, in Paris, 30th May of 1919, decided to destroy the League of Nations, even before it was started. Because, again, once again, they realize it is their greatest impediment, right? To reach the goal of world government. Do we have a League of Nations? No. It was destroyed. It took a while to get to that point, but they did whatever they could to destroy it, and they succeeded. And then they said, well, we need another organization, which will be the nucleus of a world government, a future world government, and we need to make sure America will become a member of it. But how can we guarantee America becoming part of that future world government? How, what, what, what do we need to do in order to, to succeed in, in our goal? That way they came up with a two-pronged strategy. And I mentioned some of that already yesterday. We need to go to the universities. We need to get the professors on our side, and once the professors 
uh, help us spread the gospel of world government, we have a student on, on our side. That's, that's one prong of that two-pronged strategy. The second prong is we need to go into the churches. We need to get a pastors on our side. And remember, most of the people in America went to the churches on, on, Sunday, even on, Sunday, on Sundays. And they delegated John Foster Doris to accomplish the second one. And his idea was to set up a, a movement called the Ecumenical Movement. And once again, I will leave out many facts. They set up a federal council of churches and using the federal council of churches as the basis to unite all the denominations. And when they used that to approach the statesman, especially Franklin D. Roosevelt, uh, asking him to unite all the nations based on the model uh, placed before him in regards to the ecumenical movement, how the churches succeeded in uniting. This, this is how the politicians need to use that model in order to unite all the nations. Well, this is really the, the beginning of the, of the United Nations, right? Which was set up in New York City, so they finally succeeded in getting America on board. But they had a problem. The problem was, it was still not a world government. So there was still work to do. And they also realized, John Foster also realized that the liberal churches had lost influence on American, uh, American society. The churches were empty. But there were other churches which came up and they were packed full. These are the fundamentalist churches, or they are the fundamentalist churches. And so they decided to latch on to the fundamentalist churches and to use them after the Second World War to change the United Nations organization, as it was called originally, into a fully uh, functional world government. And the fundamentalists didn't want to. They were always opposed to the idea of world government. Always. So, these leaders, like John Foster Doris, said, well, we need to change the fundamentalist movement from the inside out. We need to finance those pastors who are willing to go along with our agenda. We need to set up at least one seminary which will promote our view of things. We need to have a magazine which will promote the message of world government. And we need to have a spokesman, a public spokesman, a very well-recognized spokesman standing up for what we want to accomplish. I set up Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, California as a seminary. I founded Christianity Today as their magazine and the spokesman who was willing to be their spokesman was Billy Graham. 
Billy Graham was on the board of Bulldog Pediatric Assembly. Billy Graham gave him money for the founding of Christianity today. Billy Graham traveled the world to promote not the gospel of salvation, but dominionism. Now, you may not have known that. You may not have recognized it as such. This is what he did. Now, in his early years, in order to get acceptance, in order to be listened to, in order to become that famous evangelist he eventually became, he preached more biblically. And once he was a well-recognized evangelist, he more and more changed his message to what he really wanted to proclaim. And he, gave, he was given lots and lots of money by the wrong sources, unfortunately. And he was willing to go along. So, Fuller became the powerhouse, which was really the, the origin of all what we now would consider to be extremely negative, like neo-evangelicalism. Rick Warren studied at Fuller Theological Seminary, got his uh, degree, Doctor of Ministries at Fuller, under the supervision of C. Peter Wagner, and then we can go on, on into, into the new apostolic reformation, which also uh, was promoted at Fuller, and C. Peter Wagner was the one who did it, and then John Wimber, when we have the whole Vineyard Fellowship, the Toronto Blessing disaster, and, and Pensacola uh, disaster, and so on and so forth. So, lots of bad stuff, and the emerging church movement, and so on and so forth, all came out of Fuller, right? And today in the morning, when I was just briefly looking at some of these websites of churches here locally, big churches, you would immediately recognize the names if I would say it. I just looked at the resumes of the pastors, the head pastor, senior pastor of one of those churches. Where did he study? Where did his, where did, uh, his associate pastor study? I don't need to go further into details. Full of theological seminary. This is where all of these pastors get the poison injected into them. And this is when they bring, uh, when afterwards they bring it to, this, to Australia. Right? It's poison. Believe me, it's poison. It's done deliberately. And when I studied at Columbia International University, I had two professors of missions. Remember, I studied for three years. Uh, wanting to become a missionary. And these two were the most important uh, professors for me because I was in that missions track. Both of them got their doctoral degrees in missions at Fuller Theological Seminary. So whatever they taught us was basically uh, whatever is being taught at Fuller. Whatever was taught to them, they taught to us. And then there was one moment when one of the two said, if there is any student who totally agrees with what I present here in class. He will give that one student, or any student who agrees with me, a whole class period to present counter-arguments regards to what I am teaching. I will not penalize that student, I will not give him a bad grade, but I want to know who is in opposition to what I am teaching you. Is there any? So I looked around and <laughs> didn't see any hand going up, right? So, here we go. 
Okay, you get the glass beard. So he kept his word. I got a whole glass beard and I presented all my counter arguments. I sat down, he gave me an A. <laughs> a means the best. <laughs> like an, a one, I don't know what it is here in Australia. A, okay. So even back then, I know I was pretty green behind my ears. I don't know if this is a. That's a German idiom, right? Grün hinter den Ohren. I was pretty naive and not very knowledgeable, but still I, I picked up on that point and being presented to us and, and I said, I, I'm not buying it. And you get it here from a preach from a, from a pulpit, if they still have a pulpit. Probably they have just a bistro table or whatever. A uh, glass lectern. Don't go to the church. It's very easy to to know what's going on. Just look at the resume of a pastor. That's all you need to do to know what's going on. There's nothing more you need to know. That's enough. That's sufficient. Anyway, coming back to my story. So they latched on to the fundamentalists who decided to sell out. Because the fundamentalists said, no, thank you. And they found Billy Graham and they found the founder of Fuller Flesh Seminary, Charles Fuller. And they found another pastor in Boston, Park Street, Congregational Church by the name of Harold Ockingay. And he became the founding president of Fuller Philological Seminary while still remaining the senior pastor at that Park Street Congregational Church in Boston, a very prestigious church. <coughs> and they started the Neo Evangelical Movement. So the Neo Evangelical Movement from a very start was a movement coming from the inside of a fundamentalist movement, countering what the fundamentalists stood for and promoting world government. Okay, they, they did it very ingeniously, so that people initially didn't even pick up on it. But this is really what they were about and wanted to pursue. And after several years, after even decades, that message of world government came out more and more and more and the one who really got it going was Rick Warren. Okay? And how and why, and I leave out quite a number of details which I could uh, relate to you now. I just want to give you the main gist of, of that development. Well, he, he never said, I'm about Rick Warren, I'm about setting up a world government. He never said it in, England, in America, to my knowledge. He went to the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, and I believe it was 2009. And he was interviewed, explained to us, Pastor, Reverend Warren, the peace plan. And he did explain it to some degree in a very short interview of maybe three to four minutes. And then he paused for a moment and he said, and I, I paraphrase, okay, so that you understand the significance of what he said. I am a member of the political organization, which is the foremost organization in America promoting world government. And then he carried on finishing his message on the peace plan. So we know what the peace plan is all about, setting up a world government. That's what the peace plan, these five giants which we need to find, all about. And he said it. Once again, he used 
euphemistic language, right? Not everyone picked up on it. But this is what he did. So we know. He led the cat out of the sack. We know that. I can point you to that uh, video, which is on YouTube. So I was writing, doing my research on John Foster Dulles. Early history of the ecumenical movement, how they wanted to use that movement in order to set up a, a, a world government, right? So I was finished. And then my, uh, during that time of my studies, my supervisor said, I, he doesn't know anything about it. So whatever I want to do, I can do. <laughs> I'm totally up, uh, uh, on my own, correct? <laughs> he will correct my bad spelling, but that's all he will do. <laughs> and that's what he did. And, but he said, I still need to warn you because if you pursue that apologetic purpose of, of arguing against new history, and if the university calls a, a professor of history who is a proponent of new history as the external examiner, he will put in his veto, he will not allow you to sit for your oral examination, that's it. He did all the work for nothing. So I said, well, I, I want to use my thesis for that purpose, for that apologetic purpose. I take the risk. I finished our three years, I finished, submitted my thesis, we went back to the States and I waited for six, about six months and I received a letter from the university stating that they had called Professor Kingsley from the University of London to be the external examiner and Professor Kingsley uh, was and is the foremost proponent of new history the entire country. <laughs> he read my thesis. He was so disgusted that I was arguing against new history that he put cuss words into the margin of my thesis. <laughs> he was pretty livid. He put in his veto, didn't let me sit for my org examination, and I didn't get my degree. <laughs> so, I sent back a letter to the university stating that he is totally biased. It's not the, the value of my academic work which I presented, right? It is the only reason why he put in his veto was because I argued against his position in New History, right? But it was the only reason why he disallowed me to sit for my oral examination. Well, the university wrote back and said, well, we knew that. This is why we called him. If you pay another year's tuition, <laughs> we will let you revise your thesis and resubmit. <laughs> if you pay another year's tuition, so it was just money. Pure and simple. It was just money. I wanted to get another year's tuition out of me. Yeah, well. Once again, I am cutting short quite a number of other stories because I was so disgusted by that whole game because this was the third time this happened to me. Not just once, the third time at different universities. So I knew that game already. It's, it has been repeated over and over and over again. So I was just totally disgusted. So I put the thesis into the draw and forgot, forgot about it. I just didn't... It wasn't worth my time just to play that game. 
they're always being hit over the head. And once again, I, I cut it short, but after two years, then I set up a company. Okay. And I, after two years of building up a company, it went up in smoke, literally. Lightning has, has struck and destroyed everything. Literal lightning has struck and destroyed everything. After two years of putting every, all my savings, everything into the operation, we had offices in five different states at the time, uh, California, Tennessee, North Carolina, Ohio, and one more, uh, Florida. And then everything went up in smoke. I'm not kidding. So I said, well, when a friend of mine came to visit, an older gentleman who was a dear friend of mine, and he came to visit and he said, well, Someone sent that lightning board, right? <laughs> Someone. <laughs> I said, I guess so. <laughs> What's the message he wants to <laughs> get you uh, understand? Well, I guess I need to go back into ministry, right? <laughs> yes, I think you should go back to ministry. And what that, does that mean? Well, you need, you need to revise your thesis. <laughs> You need to finish your PhD studies. So I pulled it out and I had to revise it. So I stood in front of the question or I, was, or was, I had to answer the question, how do I revise my thesis? I have two options. One option is to do- tone down all my arguments in opposition to new history. Right? That's one option. The other option is to go all out. To make every implicit argument against New History utterly explicit. Right? So that there is no doubt in anyone's mind where I stand. What would you do? <laughs> well, I decided to go all out. <laughs> and within two months, I revised 50% of a thesis, and every single argument which was kind of muted, I just changed it and did my best to oppose new history. And resubmitted, and I accepted it, and then I said, well, if you call the same professor, the same resource will come out. No, 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 you paid your dues now. Your, your fourth year of tuition, we will call another history professor from, a, from Cambridge University, in Cambridge. And they did, and he read my thesis, and he let me sit for my oral examination. So I flew to London and was ushered into the examination room. I sat down and when the internal examiner said to me that he and the external from Cambridge discussed my thesis before I came and both of them agreed that the value of my thesis was of such high quality but they give me the degree without going through the examination process. Praise the Lord, right? <laughs> That's what Buddha Rana would say, praise the Lord. Amen. Right? I say to the, lo- to the glory of God, because it could have gone quite differently and did early on, right? Two years earlier it did go very differently. So God was good. God is good. God answers prayer. And we can only praise Him and glorify Him. So I did get my degree and then 
a few years later I just, I just thought it would be good to publish that thesis Building the Kingdom of God on Earth that was the title of it Building the Kingdom of God on Earth it was a thesis in opposition to Dominionism I started it over 20 years ago I did publish it but if you publish a book you need a foreword right or you should it's good to have a foreword so I got in contact with my supervisor and at the time we had in my last year I changed supervisors so I got a new supervisor and he knew a little bit about the topic and I asked him to write a foreword he did he sent it to me I read it and I thought whatever he wrote in his foreword doesn't fit what I wrote in my piece in my book there are two different things going on He's totally off the wall. <laughs> That's basically what I thought. So I, I was kind, I was friendly, I sent back a message, could you perhaps consider revising your foreword because you, are not, you, are not, you didn't write it about my book. He said, well, he thinks he nailed the main message of my book. He will not revise one word of it. And when he said, I'll take it or leave it, he will not revise it. So I thought, okay, <laughs> I'll publish it. Who will read the foreword anyway? Right? And I need a foreword, so I published it and went to the press and it came out in 2005. And I forgot about it. And then about 2007, about two years, perhaps even 2008, I do not know exactly the year, but maybe two or three years later, a very good American friend of mine called me up and asked me about an area of research he was engaged in and he wanted to know what I, what I think of it. Could this new movement which he was researching be connected to some effort in, in regards to setting up a world government and some other efforts which he looked at and was interested in and he called the movement technocracy. Technocracy. Do I know anything about technocracy? I thought a bit and said, well, I'm not quite sure. Someone I knew about thinks I know very much about the topic. It's my former supervisor because in his foreword, he wrote, it's just one page, he wrote the very first sentence and some other sentences within the foreword, just one page. He wrote, my book, Building the Kingdom of God on Earth, was all about technocracy. Never mentioned the term technocracy in the entire book. And my supervisor thought the entire book was describing the early history of technocracy. And this is why I thought he's totally off the wall. I, I wrote about the ecumenic movement. I wrote about John Foster Dollars. Right? What I related to you, this was the story of my book. British Empire, League of Nations, and so on and so forth. That's my, my story of my book. I didn't write about technocracy at all. And my supervisor thought, that's all I did. <laughs> without even mentioning the term technology at all. Well, was he right or not? So I looked into technology a little bit deeper 
and yes, the light, light went on in my, my mind. My supervisor was right. <laughs> I spent three years full-time study writing about a topic I had no idea about. And my supervisor never told me until he wrote it forward. So I wrote about the history of technocracy without even being aware of the fact. And my supervisor knew it. And now, in response to my friend's answer, do you know anything about technocracy? I do. I suppose I do. I know a whole lot about it. I know so much about it that I wrote a whole book about it without knowing that I did. (laughs) Isn't that strange? (laughs) Well, that's the term, technocracy. It is a religion. This is what Ori Sorsimor came up with in 1825, which he called New Christianity. This is what positivism became. And this is really uh, the philosophy slash religion, which assumes 70, 70, 70 different synonyms. So you may have encountered technocracy under a very different synonym. You may know much more about it than you actually think you do. Because I encountered it under the synonym of ecumenical movement. And there are others like progressivism, neoconservativism, liberalism. It's all technocracy. Remember, it's a religion. A religion first and foremost. It's not an ideology, it's a religion. And it's the most vicious anti-Christian religion you can think of. So, remember I, I, talked, I told you about August Kant, who was the private secretary of Ori Sosimor, who split off from Sosimor and then set up a religion of humanity, which was the, the, um, the synonym for his philosophy of positivism. Well, positivism as a philosophy slash religion was promoted in Vienna at the turn of the century, 19th to 20th century, by a group of university professors and others, and they called themselves Wiener Kreis, Vienna Circle. And that Vienna, Vienna Circle became very well known. And they were, their task was to promote positivism or the new, new Christianity or technocracy. This was their main purpose. Two members of the Vienna Circle were the parents of Peter Drucker. And Peter Drucker got uh, or imbibed that uh, religion of humanity, new Christianity, as an infant. And that was what he set out to do, to promote that kind of religion as far as his legs would take him. And he eventually came to the States and he latched on to Rick Warren. And then obviously he promoted that kind of religion under the term of general systems theory because that's what it is. Right? So you see the, the, the circle is, is closing. Now you can put the pieces together. Now you can understand better what is behind dominionism. It's a religion called it's a religion called techno- technocracy. 
That's what it's called. Go to the website of the University of Adelaide. There's a whole long article, newly published. I can point you to that particular article on the website of the University of Adelaide. Promoting technocracy as the new governmental system in Australia. Read it through. It's here in Australia. It's being promoted under the label of a new governmental system. You know now much better what it is. It's a vicious anti-Christian religion. A vicious anti-Christian religion. Now you probably ask yourself, why am I here? I attend a very good church. My church always stood in opposition to dominionism. We don't have anything to do with dominionism as such. Why am I here listening to that presentation for five hours? The reason is because you are already affected by it. If you want it or not. You are already affected by it if you know it or not. The moment you leave that church building, you are affected by it. Because it's all around you. Whatever happens in Canberra, is this correct? Is the promotion of a new anti-Christian religion under the term of technocracy. Or they use different other terms. They in recent years, they used the term conservatism or liberalism here in Australia, liberal party. And I know that in America, at least, most Christians I talk to are highly in favor of the Republican Party. Republican Party is the party interested the most to promote technocracy. And Christians are happily going to the voting booths and voting for that party. But no, that, par- that party stands for technocracy, which is a vicious anti-Christian religion. Don't forget that. It's not an ideology. It is also one. It's also philosophy. But first and foremost, it's a religion. So you are affected by it, if you know it or not. Now, I already told you the solution of it. What's the solution? Do we need to go on the streets holding up banners, we don't like technocracy. The solution is to point to the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, God of Gods. Who will take care of that problem, right? When he comes back. He will take care of the problem. I cannot. I cannot. But what I can do is point others to that Savior. And he's a great Savior. He's greater than all the problems we would encounter our own personal lives, as well as in society, as well as in the world around us. He is a great Savior. And He died on the cross. He rose from the dead bodily. He will come back as He has risen, as He ascended. He will set up His kingdom, and His kingdom will last 1,000 years. And then we will be part of that kingdom, and then we will be ushered into eternity. That's the message. That's the gospel of salvation. And I stand, stand uh, by it. Stand, I stand up for it. And I hope you do too. Amen.